Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. What would Martin Luther think of present-day modern evangelicals? In this sermon preached at Temple Patrick Reformed Church in 2017, I briefly look at Martin Luther's theology and compare it with some of the practices and beliefs of the modern evangelical movements, asking what Martin Luther would really make of it all. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata podcast. Martin Luther think of us? What would he think of modern Christianity? Michael Horton, one of the great theologians of our time, a man who is uh, recognized as a leading reformed commentator and theologian, wrote these words. As we approach the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, today's Protestants actually have little to be proud of. As we survey our movement as a whole, the content of our messages and the shape of our worship services are largely determined by cultural preferences, marketing strategies, and crowd-pleasing techniques from the entertainment industry rather than by scripture. At the end of the day, what we're left with is a kind of narcissistic spirituality that caters to the desires and the felt needs of the masses rather than a transcendent word that confronts us, challenges us, and rescues fallen sinners. Looking generally at the church, that just about sums it up. And I can't imagine why it is that so much attention is being paid today to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in some modern churches. See posters everywhere advertising it. I wonder, are they simply gone another gimmick? Uh, Everyone from Arminians to Pentecostals, Baptists to Presbyterians, Anglicans, maybe even one or two Congregationalists, have been doing their best to promote the Reformation and their links with the Reformation. And in many cases, their links with the Reformation are extremely tenuous. I want to look to date for a few moments then at Luther and what Luther thought of what he called the radicals. Then I want to look at Luther's distinctive doctrines for a few moments. What marked Luther out? And to see where we would differ from him, and we will differ from him, on some points, but the vast swathe of evangelicals will differ from him on most points, and to see what he would think of them. Of course, the Reformation caused a reaction, didn't it? On the one hand, pious Catholics reacted to what Luther was doing in what we call the Counter-Reformation. They became more entrenched in their Catholic piety. Teresa of Avila, 
and the rise of personal piety. The Jesuits, the Pope's army, specifically commissioned to destroy the Reformation. And let us not forget that the present Pope in Rome is a Jesuit. And he is acting Jesuitically, as Jesuits do. Wasn't he on a plane with all these journalists and he began to make pronouncements about homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And then whenever we started to analyze what he had said, somebody said, oh yes, but the Pope speaking pastorally is not the same as the Pope speaking doctrinally. Because when he speaks doctrinally, he speaks with the authority of the church. But when he speaks pastorally, he's speaking with compassion to the masses. So he can say anything he wants pastorally. Now, I call that hypocritical, Jesuitical speech. Because what he's doing is he's doing what the Jesuits have always done. He is using double speak to try to destroy the Reformation and reform churches, to bring Christianity down. And of course, because he's a Jesuit, and because he's so good at what he does, all the modern evangelical leaders from the great megachurch worlds are flocking to him, ready to recognize this dear brother in Christ, ready to reverse the Reformation. And of course, that has been the work of the Jesuits right from the time of the Reformation, right up till now, right from the time whenever the Jesuits were formed and founded by Ignatius Loyola. On the other hand, there are those who wanted to go much further than Luther and the other magisterial reformers had gone. They're known as the Radical Reformation. The Counter-Reformation was the reaction in Catholicism. The Radical Reformation was a reaction within, I suppose it would be within extreme Protestantism. The Protestant radicals. It's hard to quantify them. They were amazingly diverse. There was Thomas Munzer. There were Anabaptists, people who believed in rebaptizing their converts. Many of them were millenarians, so they would have believed that the, the coming of Christ was imminent and that they were to help establish the New Jerusalem right here and now. Now, I don't know whether you know it or whether you've heard of the thing called the New Apostolic Reformation. The New Apostolic Reformation is a modern-day movement with restored apostles, they say, and restored prophets, they say. People who are the successors, I suppose, in their mind, of the apostles of the New Testament. And those people are mandated, according to them, to prepare the conditions for the coming of the Lord Jesus. They are classical radicals. They are doing exactly what the Radical Reformation was doing. These people believe in the seven mountain mandate and they have to conquer these seven aspects of society. Mountains they claim like uh, business and commerce, the church and um, 
education, entertainment. They have a whole list of these things. Oh, and if you're fond of listening to Hillsong music, they're involved in it too, except that they won't call themselves that. They're quite subtle. They don't talk about the seven mountain mandate. They talk about the seven spheres that they have to conquer to prepare the way. These seven mountains, seven spheres, have to be conquered in order to prepare the way for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. That's exactly what was happening with the millenarians of the Radical Reformation in Luther's day. Suppose the Munster, Munster Rebellion and Siege is just one example. In April 1534, on Easter, Easter Sunday, a man who had prophesied God's judgment to come on the wicked of that city made an assault with 30 followers. He believed that he was the second Gideon. And he attacked the city, but he was defeated. He was put to death. His head was cut off. It was placed on a pole. Um, but there was another man called John of Leiden, a 25-year-old who became this other man's successor, Matthias's successor, religious successor, political successor. He received visions from heaven, apparently. So do a lot of modern evangelicals. Modern evangelicalism is full of people who believe in extra-biblical revelation, and it's no longer confined to the Pentecostal charismatic movements. Most of the megachurch movement of the world is based on what they call vision-casting leaders who will receive a personal vision from God, and they will then cast that vision to their congregation, and that will be their personal vision for their church. Their vision doesn't come from the scriptures. It comes to the vision-casting leader as a direct revelation. And that's exactly what the Radical Reformation was doing. This man was receiving, he said, visions. Visions from heaven. His authority grew. He proclaimed himself to be the successor of King David and started wearing royal robes and taking royal honours and proclaimed the new Zion here on earth. And... He did other things like legalizing polygamy. He had 16 wives. One woman refused to marry him and he beheaded her. And eventually, a siege was called. The authorities surrounded the city until the people of Munster were starving as a result of a year-long siege. Such radicalism. And yet, on the other hand, some of the Anabaptists were exactly the opposite. They were extreme pacifists. Some of them refused to take up the sword. Some of them refused to serve in the military. Some lived in communities separate from the world, like the Hutterites. Many of today's evangelical churches have doctrines and beliefs that, as I have tried to illustrate for you briefly, are not too far removed from the theology of the Radical Reformation. Luther had no time for radicals. Luther would have called them, in a strange way, mechanics. People who were driven by their emotions, driven by their enthusiasm. To be an enthusiast in those days 
in Luther's mind, was not a good thing. Luther felt that this enthusiasm drove people away from the word of God and led them to extreme positions which they should never have taken. So what would Luther have believed? Luther had some very distinctive doctrines. And it's whenever we understand what Luther actually believed that we wonder why so many modern evangelicals tend to want to celebrate him. The five solas of the Reformation, of course, are common to all the great reformers, aren't they? Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fides, Sola Christus, Sola Deo Gloria, all of those are common ground. Scripture alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Those are the common ground of the Reformation, of the great magisterial reformers. But Luther differed. What made him differ? To the modern perception of him as being one of us, uh, a great evangelical. Luther would never have called himself evangelical in the sense that we understand it today, in the sense that the word has been twisted and tortured by modern churches. Of course, Luther believed mostly, uh, first of all and foremost, I suppose, in doctrine of justification by faith. One of the uh, oft-quoted articles of Luther is the small-called articles. And Luther says there, the first and chief article is this. Jesus Christ, our God and our Lord, died for our sins and was raised again for our justification. He alone is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All have sinned and are justified freely without their own works and merits by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in his blood. This is necessary to believe. This cannot be otherwise acquired or grasped by any work or law or merit. Therefore, it is clear and certain that this faith alone justifies us. Nothing of this article can be yielded or surrendered, even though heaven and earth and everything else fails. I wonder what Luther would think then of those Meetings that have been held recently between uh, the World Lutheran Federation and the Roman Catholic Church, where they have come together and agreed on various doctrines, including the doctrine of justification by faith. One of the essential elements of Luther's theology, and of course Luther's theology is entirely biblical, he keeps his, his, he takes everything. His focus is on the Bible. He, he never varies to any degree from what the scriptures say. And another essential aspect of his theology was his hermeneutical principle of the proper distinction between law and gospel. From Genesis to Revelation, he saw both law and gospel.
He believed that anything in the Bible that said do this is law, that God must be obeyed in every situation. And yet because we are sinners, our obedience will fall short of what God wants us to do, what God commands. And because that falls short, that's sin. And sin is the breaking of the law, the breaking of the commandment of God. And the wages of sin is death. And we would be punished for that. But alongside that, he saw gospel. And when the law is anything in the scriptures that says, do this, gospel is anything in the scriptures that said, this has been done for you. And so he looked for law and gospel. And with those two distinctives in mind, that became the root of, of his theology. It was his essential starting point in the study of the scriptures. And he would have believed that the modern evangelical tendency to fail to properly distinguish between what God has commanded for us to do and what God has done for us in Christ is the root of many of our modern theological errors. Justification by faith was the basis of Luther's theology. Law and gospel was the basis of Luther's hermeneutic. Simul justus et peccator. Sorry, it's always wrong to lapse into Latin when you're not a Latin speaker. But that's what Luther called it. Luther maintained that we are simultaneously saints and sinners to the day that we die. Luther maintained that the inclination to sin is truly sin. And that because our hearts are sinful, we never cease to be sinners. Luther, raised as a Catholic and taught Catholic theology, would have understood that sin was not something that we were, that sin was something that we did. You see, Roman Catholics believe that the tendency to sin is not itself sin. It is the residual effect of sin after their baptism. Sin, they say, is not the inclination to sin. It is the sin that we actually do. In fact, the Council of Trent, 1545, taught that what they call concupiscence, that's the the tendency to sin within man, comes from sin and induces to sin. Paul has talked about it also in Romans chapter 7. How that there is within me uh, a law that wars against me. One part of me knows I, I, I have within me this sinful tendency that makes me want to do what is wrong. And Therefore, I must battle it and wage war against it. What John Owen would have called the mortification of the flesh, the constant putting to death of the flesh, the constant repentance um, of, of sin in our lives. The Council of Trent declared that concupiscence, that tendency to sin, comes from sin and induces to sin, yet is not itself sin. So let's get the difference between Protestants and Catholics here. Protestant believers should believe that we are sinners to the day that we die, that we are justified by God because of Christ, that we are in a right standing before God legally because of Christ. 
that we still have this tendency to sin within us and that that sinful tendency within us is in fact our sinfulness. So our sin that we do flows from our sinful nature rather than we are sinners because we sin. Do you see the difference? We sin because we are sinners. Catholics are sinners because they sin. And yet we are justified sinners. And Luther held that throughout life until the day that we get to heaven, Simul justus et peccator. We are at the same time justified before God and yet sinners. Human beings are justified by grace alone, but at the same time they remain sinners until the day that they die. And they will always need to be aware of that sin, like St. Paul here in Romans chapter 7. He knew that sin dwells within him. He knew that no good thing in his flesh dwells within him. For to will, he says in verse 18, is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not. But the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Sin's dwelling in him. What must he do? He must war against it. He must recognize that sin. He will grieve over it when it comes, when he starts this inclination to want to sin, when that comes upon him. He will war against that and he will battle against it and he will take it to the Lord and confess it. And how will he ever be saved from the wretchedness of this body of death? Well, only through Jesus Christ. I contrast that with modern evangelicalism. Think of the sinless perfection of the extreme Methodists. Think of the entire sanctification doctrine that persisted in the faith mission types. Think of the spirit-filled overcoming Pentecostal believers and charismatics, and even modern middle-of-the-road evangelicals. Romans 7 is the key biblical passage for understanding Luther's doctrine of Simon Eustace et Peccator. Very quickly, Luther, of course, believed in the two kingdoms. He had this doctrine of the two reigns of God. He he taught us that he taught that uh, God teaches that God is the ruler of the whole world, that he rules in two separate ways, by the law and by the gospel. And there is that emphasis on law and gospel again. God rules the earthly kingdom through the secular government, as we read about in Romans chapter 13 just a few weeks ago, by means of the law and by means of the sword. At the same time, he rules his spiritual kingdom in order to promote human righteousness before God, and that's done through the gospel, through which, through which the gospel alone, humans can be justified by God's grace alone. The two kingdoms, the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom. Two final things. Luther's views on the sacraments and on worship would be different from ours. 
Luther's views on the sacraments moved from a Roman Catholic position. He, he didn't move as far as Calvin or as far as John Knox. For example, in terms of communion, Luther didn't believe in transubstantiation, which the Catholics believed. When a Catholic priest stands before the altar and he holds the wafer god in his hand and he lifts it up and he says, this is my body, then that the little bell rings in the chapel and that becomes the literal body and flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the priest then takes that and he sacrifices it afresh on the Roman altar. Now we know that. Luther didn't believe that. But he still believed in the real presence of Christ in the sacraments. Luther believed in the ubiquity of Christ, that Christ was everywhere. His argument was that he is in this room with us right now, for where two or three are met together uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that he is there in their midst. And if he is ubiquitously present, then he must be present in the bread and the wine. And I think we would probably want to disagree with him on that one to that extent. But in baptism was the real difference. Luther, of course, and Lutherans to this day believe in baptism as a saving ordinance. What benefits does baptism give, he says, in his small catechism? Now listen very carefully to his explanation of this. Because it's not quite the same as the Catholic one. Baptism works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. Now, we couldn't go with that. But then Luther says, how can water do such great things? And he says, certainly not just water, but the, and here's the key, but the word of God in and with the water does these things along with faith. Now, there's the difference. You see, Luther believed that the ministry of the word and the ministry of sacrament were so intrinsically linked because they both are Christ-centered. Because everything in Luther's mind in the Bible points us to Jesus, Old Testament and New Testament. When, when he preached from God's word, he preached Christ and him crucified. He preached the gospel. But he believed that the sacraments were a visual aid to point us to Christ. That's different from modern, modern ideas on baptism, where it seems to be that baptism is about your testimony. Baptism is about something that you did, not something that Jesus did. Luther said that baptism so points us to Christ that along with the word and faith, It becomes the means by which Christ's death on the cross is revealed to sinners and thus becomes a saving effect. Now, whether we'd want to go so far as that or not, (laughs) you can make your own mind up. But that's what Luther believed. He says, without God's word, the water is plain water and is no baptism. So you see, although Luther believed that Baptism saves. He only believed that baptism saves in the same extent as the preaching of the word saves. To the same extent that the focus on Christ saves. To the same extent that we are saved by faith. Because salvation is not worked by what we do 
whether in pouring water over someone or dipping them in water or standing in a pulpit, it is done by Christ who died on the cross for sinners. That's where our salvation is achieved. If you can work all that out, you're doing really well. So baptism for Luther was, to that extent, a means of grace. Worship would be different as well. There's a huge difference here. You'll already appreciate the difference between Luther and Calvin. And of course, Luther would have taught the people that you could admit anything into worship so long as it was conducive to the worship of God and not forbidden by the scriptures. Whereas Calvin, as we know, taught the regulative principle of worship where only what was explicitly sanctioned in God's word could be admitted to worship. So Lutheran churches uh, would be different than our churches would be. I remember a Roman Catholic coming to a funeral in Ballymacashan. And afterwards, I was talking to him. He says, I've never been in a Protestant church in my life. That's the very first time. And I says, what did you think? He says, I couldn't get over the austerity of it. And I'm thinking to myself, that's because what he's used to is statues and organ music and all the vestments and the clergymen and the, 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 the bells and the smells and all the oratorios and the great musical performance and the crucifixes. That's what Luther allowed to remain in the church. Lutheran churches in his day, and even up to today, would have crucifixes, would have statues, would have organs, would have vestments, would have clergy. Calvin would have despised all of that, and he took all of that out. He removed and tore down the organs and all of the paraphernalia of Roman worship and left us with the churches that we recognize today. How many modern Protestants are trying to reverse that? By making church more appealing to human senses and to the word of God. So you can get a grasp just by thinking of Luther's distinctive doctrines of what he would think of modern evangelicalism. His whole emphasis of justification by faith. His hermeneutical principles of law and gospel are just being totally ignored today. His understanding of the Christian believer being a sinner who needs to repent right to the very day that he dies would have been well understood by the Protestant Puritans, but is not understood at all in modern evangelicalism, even in middle-of-the-road evangelicalism. His idea of the two kingdoms, God ruling in the world and God ruling in the church, uh, uh, no notion of it in modern evangelicalism. His high view of the sacraments, which certainly we would share his high view, his high regard for baptism and the Lord's Supper, even if we didn't go to the extent that he did with his understanding of it. You know, nowadays in modern evangelicalism, you can buy a communion kit, which is a little thing like what milk comes in in a cafe with a little tiny wafer on the top. And in some modern churches, when it comes to communion, 
they just walk to the front and they lift one of these little things and they go back to their seat. That's it. Baptism, similar. And worship. So I think when Luther would have looked at what we were doing, would he, what the modern church was doing, I wonder would he have thought of us and thought of the modern church of our generation as being more akin to the millenarian Anabaptist radicals that persisted in his day. Somebody once said the Reformation occurred and it changed the church, but the Anabaptists won. think the solution to the differences between Luther and Calvin lay at Heidelberg. It was there that Frederick wanted to unite his divided people, Lutherans and Calvinists, and to do so he commissioned Zacharias Ursinus and others to draft a catechism, which would allow all Protestant people to unite in accepting its teaching. The result was the Heidelberg Catechism, a superb blend of the best of Lutheran and Calvinistic belief without the Lutheran sacramentalism. It has been common to portray Luther as a simple and obscure monk who challenged the Pope and the Emperor. But actually Luther was anything but simple or obscure. He was learned and experienced, and he accomplished far more beyond what most men of his age would accomplish. Luther was a monk, a priest, a preacher, a professor, a writer, and a reformer. Luther was one of the most courageous and influential people. Luther's search for peace with God changed the whole course of human history. He challenged the power of Rome over the Christian church, he smashed the chains of superstition and tyranny, and he restored to the Christian true liberty to worship God in spirit and in truth. <laughs>